0: How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we look at news coverage of climate and environmental stories in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Emerging economies in those regions made tiny contributions to historic carbon pollution that is swirling around the atmosphere and destabilizing the Earth's operating system. But their emissions are quickly growing and they're feeling some of the worst impacts of severe weather that is exacerbated by burning fossil fuels. Over the next hour, we'll look at the mainstream media is covering environmental and carbon stories in Brazil, China, Nigeria, and the Philippines. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three journalists and a media watchdog from key developing countries. Imelda Abano is president of the Philippine Network of Environmental Journalists in the Philippines. Gustavo Faleiros is environmental journalist and night fellow from Brazil. And Litsan Liu is water director at Greenovation Hub in China and Michael Samiri is deputy editor of the Sunday Independent in Nigeria. Please welcome them to Climate One. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for coming. Um, I'd like to start with each of you uh, introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about how you came to the work you're doing. Uh, Gustavo, you worked for Valero uh, Economico, a main business paper in Brazil, and tell us how you came into the environmental beat.
1: Well, this was back in 2001 when I started there. I was fresh out of the college. So I was basically doing financial journalism, and there was no many people dedicated to cover the environment. So as the junior of the newspaper, they just saying, like, go there and do that environmental thing. And so I was, uh, in the end, I felt very lucky because I got very passionate about the the issue. So I started doing the, the climate coverage mainly because at that time there was a lot of the discussion about the, the, the CDM, the uh, clean development mechanism coming to Brazil. But I end up dealing with the, uh, with the forestry issue, which is uh, greater in Brazil. Let's say the big issue for environmental coverage is deforestation. So uh, I end up Working much more with uh, the Amazon issue, which is my main subject nowadays.
0: And you founded the Amazon Communications Network. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, it was a network uh, in a in a sense that we felt that we needed to reach out not just journalists from Brazil but from the other countries. The Amazon basin is uh, is shared among nine countries, so uh, this was in a in a digital an environmental digital news uh, agency. It's called Oeco. So we started a project which was uh, reaching out journalists in Guyana, Suriname, Colombia, Peru, and, and producing news in English, Spanish, and Portuguese to discuss how the, the Amazon is, is, is shared, among like the resources are shared, the problems of deforestation, mining concessions. And most recently, we launched a new project, which is called Info Amazonia, which is more like a database of all the stories that were produced by this network of journalists.
0: Excellent. I'm sure we'll come back to the uh, Amazon at some point during our conversation. Uh, San Leo, you were a television reporter, and now you help educate reporters and wear lots of different hats. Tell us how you ke- uh, came into that.
2: Well, I used to be a uh, TV reporter more than 10 years ago. Uh, but then after several years, I uh, uh, joined Greenpeace as a media officer and then campaigner. So I stepped in the circle of uh, uh, green groups. Uh, I now work with uh, EJN, Earth Journalism Network as a Chinese coordinator for several small projects there. We train uh, Chinese journalists. Uh, we organize the uh, salons, workshops, uh, field trips, uh, etc. to help, you know, to uh to help Chinese journalists uh, to get more professional. Um, now we have uh, some uh, exchange field trip uh, between China and the Southeast Asia countries for Chinese journalists. Uh, well, it, 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 it actually is a good thing to see that uh, we have so many projects focusing on environment, especially uh, from my perspective in China, because you know, everyone knows that China is facing a very severe environmental problem, uh, of not only in China, but uh, internationally. So I hope that uh, in the future we can do more Within China and uh, with international colleagues.
0: Thank you, Emilia Albano. You uh, won a uh, journalism award a, a few years ago and then founded a, a journalism network. Tell us about how you did that.
3: Well, um, I covered um, environmental degradation in uh, one of the eight wonders of the world, the Ifugao rice terraces in the Philippines, and then I was covering health issues and women's uh, issues uh, at the time. So I wrote about environmental, and angled it on environmental issues. And it won the uh, IUCN Asia uh, Reuters Media Award category. That's way back in 2002. So that started my career as an environmental journalist.
0: And then what prompted you to, to start the network?
3: Well, we started the network way back uh, uh, in 2003, uh, 2000. Uh, Ten with the assistance, of course, of a bigger network, which is the Internews Environmental Journalism Network. So uh, with their assistance, we formed this, we created this Philippine network of environmental journalists, uh, which have, like, more than 100 um, uh, members right now. And our goal is that to increase the quality and quantity of environmental reporting in the Philippines because, as you know, the Philippines... They, they call us, like, the laboratory of natural disaster. So we have the volcanic eruption, typhoons. We are visited, like, 20 typhoons average a year, and flooding, sea level rise. So you name it, we have it. And, of course, yeah, we, we really have to be part of the solution. So we want to increase our tribe on environmental journalism.
0: We'll come back to floodings and things in the Philippines shortly. Uh, Michael Samiri, you started the Environmental News Nigeria uh, in 2012. So tell us how you came to to this beat and this profession. I
4: I actually studied urban planning at the university. In the early 90s, I um, got into the Guardian newspaper. They wanted people that studied uh, to be more or less specialized. So the desk was quite exciting. We had an architect, an urban planner, an estate manager. We were on the desk. We virtually initiated, we started this um, Environmental Journalism in Nigeria, and it grew from there, and um, years later I moved to the punch. I still I still had a passion for urban planning, so I still continued uh, studies over there. But um, over the years, I, I got um, involved in fellowships with EJN, and then really... Um,
0: the Environmental e- journalism, journalism Network, and, and um, journalism. fellowships
4: and training programs. Um, I was inspired after some time to form this Environmental in Nigeria. There was actually a gap and what it, one of the things that started, that inspired me to start this thing, was um, I, I noticed that um, a lot of young journalists, they had nowhere to publish their stories. They had very good stories in Nigeria. The, the, the environmental stories are not, they are not really so attractive. The, the newspapers want to put in the politics and the business stories there. So there was a, there was this gloss of stories by, by young journalists, and I was, um, I, I was also running a program for United Nations and the. African Reporting Program to um, uh, you know to monitor young journalists. So I, I started this website and I I got the stories. The stories were there. They they actually made an impact. They were encouraged to to put in the stories. And it's, the website also turned out to be a kind of a, a reference point for development in Nigeria. In Nigeria we have, we have a lot of environmental challenges. The Niger Delta area the ocean surge in the coastal areas, the desertification in the the northern areas, so many things, uh, gully erosion in the eastern part of the country. So the website was very handy as a reference point, as an inspiration to young journalists, as a a, a cluster, a reference point where we can uh, get a a cluster, a a number of stories from Nigeria. It was It's actually been a, a challenge to me and we've made a lot of progress in that regard.
0: Well, let's talk about environmental reporting broadly. Uh, in the United States, there's environmental reporters are a diminishing breed, uh, and it's often thought that environmental issues are something of a luxury for people upper middle class once you have some basic needs met. So, I'd, I'd like to ask all of you, and starting with Li Tan about, you know, where does environmental uh, concerns, uh, rank in China right now. We've seen the headlines about uh, people wearing masks to jog in Beijing, that sort of thing. So give us a broad brush about environmental concerns in China, urban urban China. Well, uh, in urban China,
2: I I mean, let's take Beijing for an example. People say that uh, Beijing is not a place for human beings to live there. Uh, You have to, you you cannot exercise. You cannot run because because of the bad air quality. Uh, The drinking water is a big problem. Um, there are so many cars. Uh, we burn so many coals in North China. So, uh, but but of course, this is because uh, one of the reasons that uh, there are so many middle classes now in China uh, compared to ten years ago. So they complain a lot about the environmental uh, situation. But uh, another thing that if you look at the rural China, the problem will be worse. But people don't know. There are 300 million rural Chinese cannot access to clean drinking water. Well, it's more like uh, the fourth, you know, the biggest country in terms of population in the whole world. Uh, they all live in rural China, and uh, they drink dirty water every day. Uh, I mean, the, the air quality should be better than it is in Beijing. Uh, but there's a lot of, you uh, know, the... So-called environmental victims in rural China because they have no power, no resources or knowledges to fight back against pollution uh, or you know the consequences of climate change. So it, it, the range is pretty uh, broad, from middle class, from the top down uh, or from the bottom up, you know from the rural remote areas to uh, big cities. There are so many environmental problems now. China is kind of in a stage of pre-modern, modern, modern, -modern. post-modern. So we are facing a lot of uh, environmental problems you have faced or are facing now. So it's uh, it's a big challenge for for Chinese leaders, for for our ordinary people, and for Chinese media.
0: And do these issues get covered in the uh, state-controlled, government-controlled media? Well, literally, all
2: media should be controlled by the government. That's by law. Um, but uh, there are, of course, market-oriented uh, media now in China. Uh, generally, if you read Chinese newspaper or you, you watch TV, you can see many uh, environmental coverage every day because there are so many issues happen every day. Um, but there is, everyone knows know that there, there is kind of a censorship. So if some real big environmental accident happened, uh, the propaganda department will issue restriction order uh, to no, the to media uh, not allowed media to you know, cover certain issues but uh, generally speaking environmental issues are not that sensitive so we can still report a lot
0: Gustavo, I'd also like to ask you also whether the environmental concerns get broad coverage is there censorship or is there just sort of market neglect they don't sell newspapers so they're not in there
1: No, I believe we have a good coverage in Brazil I I see uh uh, newspapers and that's a, i think a, a problem of the media and tv not investing so much anymore there was a good moment in 2007 with the climate change discussion ipcc I, I think there are some studies which uh, show that in latin america brazil was one of the countries who have more coverage like constant coverage and but besides that we do have a, a good coverage right now of the Development plans of the, of the government in the Amazon because the energy sector now in Brazil is moving to the Amazon. It's like, mm-hmm. like the last frontier on energy is occupying the rivers of the Amazon. So, uh, this is so controversial because there are m- uh, very large projects that you might have heard about the Belo Monte Dam, which there's a couple of movies, the uh, Cameron, I forgot, James Cameron, the, the movie maker went to Brazil to do the kind of a, uh, protest against the, the the indigenous people who were being displaced or affected by the dam. So there's good coverage on these large projects. But there's one thing that I it, it always crossed my mind that is the Amazon, it's of course a gift to Brazil, but in terms of uh, uh, environmental awareness is a, a curse as well. Because if you go to Sao Paulo, which is a, the hugest city in Latin America, you, and you ask, what is the environment for you to any of the its dwellers, they would say like, oh, well, the environment is up there in the Amazon and they don't really care about what's going on around them. So uh, we're good on, on, on defending the Amazon but not very good on, on getting engaged on, on solving the, the, the urban problems. I think that's the main issue right now on, on the coverage as well. There's, it should have much more coverage on, on the urban problems, waste, uh, water management and, and pollution.
0: So environment means trees and endangered species rather than ecosystems and parks and urban issues not connected directly to their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amelda Abana, let's ask you about uh, whether environmental issues get coverage and whether the uh, climate is connected to some of the floods and the severe weather that the Philippines has experienced.
3: Yeah. You know, by the time you step out of your uh, house, you can see, feel environmental impacts. The water, not that clean. You know, we lack um, electricity supply in the rural areas, and um, the media coverage is not really uh, as prestigious as the other bit, like the technology sector, you know, the politics, and of course, show business. Especially now that we have these midterm, mid-term elections in May, so it's it's we we are the coverage is improving. But the improvement is very slow.
0: But it's not the best career path for a journalist is what you're saying. If you want to make it to the top as a journalist, you don't pick environment. Right. You pick celebrity or, or, or tech or something else. <laughs> um, Michael Samiri, Nigeria, huge energy producer, oil exporting country. I would think that environment would be a pretty big issue there, flaring and everything else. Is that
4: it true? is. It is. It's a big problem. The uh, Niger Delta area, very notorious. A lot of um, pollution virtually every day. There's speed, one spill speed or the other. Um, the gas-associated is uh, flared, and we have these um, very active um, civil society uh, organizations, and they actually carry the press along very well. And um, it has actually made our job very exciting. We, um, we key into to the development. We have, no, we have no option because it's a major disaster area in that part of the country, and um, we, we've been following it regularly, and the government uh, has not helped matters. They keep on shifting the dates to, to stop the uh, flare out. And um, anytime there are spills, if the, the, the state-run media don't tell all the truths. so it's not left for we, the, the private um, media to go down there and say the way it is, what is actually on ground.
0: Let's talk about climate impacts in your countries. I mean, some of the developing countries have uh, experienced some of the most severe climate impacts. And perhaps we can start with uh, uh, Imelda, you know, floods in the Philippines, uh, pretty epic floods. You're you're getting a lot of uh, unwanted water, at least not in the times that you're used to getting it. So tell us about the climate impacts and floods.
3: Well, last year, just last year, while we have this uh, United Nations Climate Change Conference, we were like, Submerged by a lot of flooding, and then the the policymakers or the government doesn't care about us anymore because we are literally sinking, you know. And of course, the other small islands also. And it's really, uh, it's it's really disgusting for us journalists to be covering uh, environmental issues if the government itself doesn't care about it.
0: So there's floods and they're not responding or providing aid to to victims of the floods.
3: Right. But right now, well, the government at least is uh, concentrating on uh, implementing laws on uh, urban planning at least.
0: Uh, Litan, let's ask you, there's also been floods uh, in in China. We've talked a little bit about the air pollution. What other climate impacts is, is China wrestling with? Uh, well, it's, I mean, the media
2: coverage on uh, climate change is not uh, really good in China, uh, especially after 2009, after the Copenhagen conference. Uh, but uh, when there is uh, you no know, extreme weather event happened, people tend to say that it is because of climate change. Uh, even my mother, sometimes if, if the winter is too cold or too warm, she will say that, oh, climate is changing but i mean <laughs> that's, that's that's about in you know, ordinary life uh, but usually, because china is a country where a lot of floods happen every day and the drought happen every, uh, every every year not every day so people tend to think it's, it's a natural thing um, you know, we don't uh, really think it, it it is highly related about uh, related to climate change so it's hard to you know, to to tell uh, people that uh, no climate change is is
0: just there? Are there clim- hardcore climate change deniers like there are in Washington D.C.? <laughs> I mean, they're a special breed. Yeah, I, I mean,
2: believe so. I believe so. But maybe not here in the government, but uh, no, ordinary people. They just don't. It, they think it's too far away thing. I mean, it's not a urgent thing.
0: So it's the opposite of here, Gustavo. Are there hard, uh, climate change deniers who think it's a conspiracy or made up?
1: Well, there are some, but I. I I think in Brazil, they're not so strong. I mean, like, it was uh, even a um, subject of a study by um, the Reuters Institute of Journalism in Oxford. Uh, they tried to map skeptics in developing countries, and it seems that Brazil has not very loud ones. Um, we get we have very good scientists on, on, on climate issue, and that's why I think uh, they're getting much more attention, and, and these scientists are specifically showing the impacts of, of climate on, on the Amazon, on the uh, which might have heard about the savannization of the Amazon, the Amazon becoming a savanna much more uh, dry than, than the conditions which allows to be a rainforest. So the fact is, in 10 years, we had two droughts that never happened in 50 years before. It was 2005 and 2010. And they're saying that it's gonna happen this year again. So if it happens this year again, it means like you have three record droughts in, in less than ten years, which used to happen in a historical pattern. So there's a lot of attention on this thing. Same thing with floods or landslides, mudslides on, on the coast of Rio. The coast of Rio is known by being very beautiful because it's very dramatic, but it's very steepy and a lot of people living there, maybe they should. But the fact is, like, there's historical rains creating a lot of deaths, and and there was 800 people dead two years ago because of a major rain, which also was considered historic. So...
0: But on the Amazon, some people think the Amazon is a relatively positive story, that it's at risk, but Brazil has done a fairly good job, I'd like to hear your view, on addressing the risks and and, and uh, slowing the incursion of farmland and cattle grazing, that sort of thing, that it's at least a somewhat positive story of, of recognizing the risk and managing it. Is that accurate? It's true.
1: It's true that there was a, a, a major uh, improvement on, on, on combating deforestation, and for the last uh, Six years the, the the first station was literally cut by by half and this is happening in Brazil and but i I don't think this should put people in a glorious mood because there is a lot of things happening linked to Brazil, which is for example uh, roads that are being built to connect Brazil to Peru, driving much more gold mining. There's another problem which is, uh, we are discussing now, is it possible to get a, a net zero deforestation, which means like you have a, allow some areas to regrow and you still have a, some kind of legal deforestation. Because as you might have heard, many parts of the Amazon doesn't have a very good soil. So you, you need to burn some or you need to def cut some trees to keep the, the, uh, the production going on. So you need to have some legal deforestation. But is it possible to have a, a zero net deforestation? We're kind of far from this. So we have a lot of small deforestation going on. You don't have more like this large things that you would say in the 80s, in the 90s, like mm-hmm. those images that were shocking the world. But you still have like very small patches being destroyed every day. And how do you deal with this, these small farmers that don't have any technical support? So it's, it's a big challenge yet.
0: So the, the pace of destruction is slowing but not stopped. Uh, if not you're joining us, just joining us on the radio, uh, Gustavo Fileros is an uh, environmental journalist and Knight Fellow from Brazil. Our other guests at Climate One today are Imelda Abano, president of the Philippine Network of Environmental Journalists. Tsan Leo is water director at the Greenovation Hub in China. And Michael Samiri is deputy editor of the Sunday Independent in Nigeria. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the food energy and food water tension uh, cuz that can be a big issue, big environmental issue as uh, uh middle classes emerge there's a, a desire for pro animal protein diets and that can create uh both water stress and environmental stress uh so who would like to address that in some some of your coverage Michael I know that the farmers in Nigeria that's a big issue for them wrestling with with water scarcity already
4: Yeah yeah and the the climate variation Climate change is making things very worse, and um, they, they are faced with the challenge of how to adjust their uh, the, the planting seasons and things like that. And um, the, the media has, has been of, of uh, you know of in recent years. And I, uh, most of my reports have actually focused on adaptation and um, so the dealing
0: with the impacts of climate impacts change,
4: of climate change for, for so that they can make changes and know what to do, how to adjust, you know, and to still be relevant in your in in work.
0: And, um, Emila Baños, let's ask you how the food tension is playing out in, in the Philippines uh, with severe weather and, and climate impacts.
3: Yeah, I have interviewed um, a lot of farmers already, mm. and they don't know about climate change. Mm. But they do know that the cycle of farming is uh, it's, it's very different now compared before. So I think the impact there is that um, where the food supply is getting scarce and scarce. With, like, for example, in the Philippines, only we have, like, 95, more than 95 million population. It's really hard for them to produce more with this kind of uh, extreme and erratic weather.
0: Is that affecting food prices?
3: Yes, of course.
0: So, and is that affecting political stability? Maybe we can get lead time. I mean, there's concern about uh, rising food prices, instability in China. That's got to be something on the leadership's mind. I'm sorry, Lord? Uh Rising food prices okay. uh, related to weather, severe weather, food supply, yeah. and political stability. Yeah, you know what?
2: We, we import a lot of uh, coins or soybeans from the states. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean, uh, because, because it, it, it is cheaper than uh, producing it in China. And we buy a lot of land in Africa now to to, to develop agriculture. We uh, you know, we have to grow rice there. Uh, we raise uh, poultries and pigs, you know, uh, cows there to make milk to make meat. Uh, but but the thing that it is the food shortage is not a big issue, uh, or not, not a big concern for many Chinese. Instead, it is the food safety. Um, it's, uh, it's so unsafe that we buy. We, we want to buy everything you know, abroad if we have chance, so it's really a uh, i mean it it caused a problem in Hong Kong and in um, some other countries right now because of the infant milk and powder something like that uh, so you know,
0: deliberately tainted with chemicals right
2: yeah yeah we uh, we're just scared because of the food safety issue because of the pollution something.
0: And in Hong Kong and Beijing, you see start to see a little bit of organic food developing and some kind of awareness of the connection about getting things closer, things that are yeah. sort of good, good for the uh, personal health yeah. as well as environmental health. Let's talk about that. Is that something that's obviously it, – it's a premium in the United States that uh, are considered a luxury by many people. What's it like in a developing country like China or Brazil or the others?
2: Well, it's still luxury. I mean, only in upper – Middle class can afford the price of those organic foods. You no, know, it's not uh, for everybody in China. It's uh, it's just uh, it's still developing. More and more middle class in China now are you know, seeking those kind of foods uh, around their cities. But uh, the they can we cannot just find so many good uh, soil for them because you know, many percentage of the soil have been <coughs> contaminated. So it's very hard you know, for Many ordinary Chinese to to get those the safe food.
0: And the idea of, uh, sort of eating imported refrigerated produce in China that comes from California—that's not so good from a climate perspective, <laughs> carbon perspective. Uh, Gustavo, let's talk. Get you in on Brazil and the organic food. Whether that's part of the emerging awareness?
1: Yeah, it's it's a part of. It's a big trend in in Rio or in São Paulo, and I think it's it's going to be. Uh, more and more because I think it's going to be a, as a, uh, a local uh, production because you have to remember that uh, Brazil is one of the countries which is more uh, linked to the, the world trade of food. So sometimes your sugar just double the price, and you don't know why, and it's just because they decided to export in- more sugar than sell inside of the country. And this applies for many things, like meat because then the soybean price went up, and so and it affects the whole, the whole market. So I, I've been experienced myself in Sao Paulo that's getting much more affordable to buy organic food or local production than going to a, a major supermarket chain.
0: Uh, you mentioned sugar. Obviously, a lot of people associate uh, sugar with ethanol in Brazil, mm. and actually people can actually dial, I believe, at the pumps. Mm, yeah. You can actually blend your fuel in terms of how much yeah. ethanol, how much gasoline. Uh, but you have some concerns about that the biofuels have softened recently because of electric vehicles. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the main thing. I mean, nobody could imagine when uh, uh, President George W. Bush went to Brazil in 2008 that the ethanol – in Brazil would suffer such a, 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 a backdrop. I mean, like it, it's not happening the way people were imagining. We were imagining that we would be supplying, exporting ethanol all over the world and, and just not happening. Even the supply inside is, is, is going down. And it's surprising because they started producing these cars in large quantities. Most of the cars now that are sold in Brazil are uh, uh, double fuel. But the supply of, of ethanol is just not reliable because if the price of sugar is high, so the meal who does ethanol does sugar as well. So it's much it's better to sell sugar than to sell ethanol. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated issue. Uh, the government, uh, the current government, has to be blamed by what I've seen because they've been controlling the price of gasoline. So the gasoline is cheaper as well than buying ethanol in, in, in like comparable terms, like the efficiency for the car in terms of economics. So nobody would imagine that a, a, a sector like the ethanol sector would suffer such a <laughs> a backstep so soon.
0: So the government, if I heard you correctly, is keeping the price of gasoline low but allowing the price of sugar to go up. Hmm.
1: Yeah, well, the price of sugar is market price. And, and, and the gasoline price is controlled by Petrobras, which is the state-owned Monopoly. oil company. Yeah, yeah. And... And, and the government to control the inflation because inflation is the major political issue in Brazil and it might have seen now that we almost there, almost not, not big inflation as in the 80s, but almost getting these tensions that, that is going to hinder the political power. So inflation is the thing and government sh- tends to control gasoline to, to control inflation. So once you control gasoline, you're allowing people to buy more gasoline, mm-hmm. which curates more pollution and hinders the ethanol sector is just crazy.
0: Gustavo Faleros is an environmental journalist from Brazil. Uh, Li San Liu, let's get you on the price of gasoline in China. Is that something also the government keeps low for political stability, which uh, facilitates a, a, a family car for the burgeoning Chinese middle class? Well, I,
2: I don't think the price of gasoline in China is low compared to it is in America. Uh, it, well, that's in our constitution.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: well, it is controlled by the government, but uh, the price is more market because it it compares to uh, the price in Europe and in America, and in other countries, it's pretty much uh, it's not that high, not that low. So, it's it's okay. But uh, middle class always complain about the the, the the rise of the price because it it just rise, you know. Step by step, gradually, uh, in recent years, uh, but people seem have no choice. They, they they should buy a car because they don't want to you know to be squeezed in the in the in a bus or in the subway. They they can't afford the gasoline, so it's not. Uh, I mean, it, people tend not to think it is a problem of climate change or pollution. People just uh, think it uh, it's something that. Uh, we have to do we have to buy and we have to afford
0: and this gets to a key issue of, of equity um, between developed countries and and developing countries Gustavo you believe that you know or anyone else that uh, the people in emerging company c- countries have that equal right to the kind of development and lifestyle that people here in the West enjoy and that, that they should can't and shouldn't be denied that so it's, it's actually a moral issue
1: yeah yeah no the right of developing countries. Uh, uh, it's not a. It's not in question. I mean, everybody wants to have a, a nice life, and I think we're getting there. And it's, it's really, it's, it's really interesting to see how the country has. I I was born in the 70s. I'm getting old, I might say. <laughs> so I I I I I lived the 80s with the hyperinflation time. It was totally different. Like it's a much better country now. There's no doubt about it. But it can be done different. So what I I which. Uh, makes me sad is not is saying sometimes that the political discussion doesn't get to the point of uh, an alternative development. I'm not saying that we should stay living in huts, nothing like that. I'm just saying like it, it has to be a way, a different way. And we are the ones who mm-hmm. have to propose this. Brazil more than any other country, because the Amazon is the largest place, the mm-hmm. rainforest in the world, the biodiversity and everything, we have to propose something alternative. So um, it's not that we don't want it to develop, or I propose no development, but it has to be done in a different way.
0: Ameldo Albano, you have covered the U.N. climate negotiations, and this issue of, of, sort of clean development and, and technology and money transfers to developing countries is a big issue in those climate talks. Let's have your thoughts on sort of this equity issue about uh, developing countries' right to have equal access to, to, uh, to develop cleanly
3: right the developing countries are uh, asking for a technology transfer to the, the uh, to the developed countries and i i think it's the responsibility of the developed countries to uh, of course share their knowledge and share some technology to the poorer countries so they can also move on and rise
0: as well as uh, financial transfers and uh, but American taxpayers aren't too willing to send money overseas for that kind of stuff, and no individual company says, "Well, they're going to take money out of their pocket to do right. that." That's the tough part.
3: Right. I don't blame I don't blame the big companies or the corporations or the uh, nonprofit organizations. But yes, it's 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 really a tough a tough question and a tough topic for us also.
0: Michael, any thoughts on that? I mean, a lot of the pollution that's destabilizing the continent. I've had people here who said it's red, white, and blue, which means it's American and Russian and French. Uh, uh, but uh, let's hear your thoughts on, on that equity issue um, in terms of developed countries created the problem, and now there's a tough block for a developing nation.
4: Yeah, I think uh, developed uh, nations need to take um, developed nations to take responsibility uh, to address this issue. Nevertheless, I think developing nations too should, you know, should um, should not just sit back and expect money to come. They need to do. They need to develop. Find a way of um, generating money to address these issues locally. What if the, the developed nations have their own issues as well? You can't de- depend on that fully. And um, it, it reminds me of a, a, a topic in Nigeria concerning the Clean Development Mechanism. Um, the School of Thought has it that, um, in fact, it's a very, uh, very, you know, very. Uh, uh, it's very ongoing now. That um, one of the areas that you are trying to uh, set in the CDM, that is the Clean Development Mechanism, is to
0: which we should say that's a United Nations program, program for funding for projects. Fun, yeah, funding
4: projects, and um, we we add this um, project whereby we are we we, um, we we're trying to curb uh, gas flaring. So one of the projects is to, to now cut the, the flaring and use the, 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 um, the, the gas, uh, you know, captured to generate some um, power to local communities. But um, a, a, a particular group are saying that um, ordinarily, Nigeria should have stopped this flaring long ago. Why are you now using this um, CDM issue to address this issue? You're trying to make money from what you have done before. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's very controversial in Nigeria. All these issues. So, we.
0: Uh, if you're just joining us, Michael Samiri is deputy editor of the Sunday Independent in Nigeria. I'm Greg mm-hmm. Dalton. Let's talk about clean technology, and then in a few minutes, we're going to bring in our audience. But uh, let's talk about the, the flip side of this. We've been talking a lot about brown energy and the, and the other impacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean technology, renewable technologies, there's some promise. Certainly, uh, we talked a little bit about biofuels in Brazil. Um, Leads on. You know, often, people think that. Uh, China has a big lead on, on batteries and solar industry, so, uh, but there 's been some bumps lately. but is that tell us about your coverage or your thoughts on clean tech in China, which
2: well, have you ever heard that the, the largest the biggest uh, Chinese solar uh, energy uh, company just uh, bankrupt so um...
0: Suntech was which yeah,
2: yeah I... went bankrupt. So, yeah, people think that it may signal that uh, you know, how how tough the clean technology market is. Uh, we we produce a lot of uh, so-called clean technology products, but we use only some of them, and we export a really large part of the products to Europe or United States, maybe. Um, so I don't think I mean China is trying to do more in terms of. Uh, renewable techno- uh, technology or energy uh, development but the thing that China is still lag behind in terms of uh, uh, science technology and other stuff so it is a big challenge for business persons in China and for Chinese leaders to you know to really you know, to do what they
0: want to do uh, in terms of clean technology. Amelda Abaño is there a clean tech uh, sector in the Philippines?
3: yeah but we have not reached that uh, clean technology boom yet because first of all, we are concentrated on poverty issues, putting food first into the mouths of the uh, people there, then buying a very expensive solar panels, like that. But we are yeah, we are improving uh, these small hydro projects, wind energy projects also.
0: Michael Samiri, does any money from oil exports go to clean energy in Nigeria?
4: Yeah, we, we are looking at it because um, we have a lot of uh, energy challenges, pollution, trying to, to control the uh, pollution from the energy, and um, we, there's a lot of projects going on, uh, proposal at, at different stages. We're trying to look, and as the the, um, the the solar energy in Sahara Desert, and several have been have been brought up to to and has this uh, potential, and we, we are really looking at several proposals in Nigeria.
0: We're talking about news coverage of environmental and climate issues in Brazil, Philippines, uh, Nigeria, and China. You're listening to Climate One. Um, let's talk about population. Uh, people look at the growth of population to 9 billion, and a lot of environmentalists don't like to talk about population, but that's one of the biggest levers driving uh, increased consumption, resource extraction, stress, overshoots. There's lots of words for these things. Is that part of the environmental conversation? I mean, uh, China got population under control through some very <laughs> strong measures. Um, you know, that has its own set of issues. But the other let's talk about is population connected at all to the environmental stress issues?
2: Of course. I mean, if you divide the, those problems with population, you can see that the average Uh, thing of uh, environmental problem is not that big, but if you put it together, it's a really big thing uh, in in China, and uh, it will uh, affect other countries. Um, But think that uh, now within China, we're discussing whether we should end the one-child policy now, uh, not because of environmental concerns, but because we think that uh, we we have to uh, make this policy for two decades, more than two decades, so uh, the China is getting older before it gets richer. So um, it may be a time to disc- for a discussion of uh, you know, the, the, the end of this policy, but it's still, it's still in the air somewhere. Um, people tend, to, tend not to think, not think a lot about population and with you know, environmental issues, but of course it is highly related to population.
0: So a lot of the models of uh, nine billion people that could change if China changes the one child policy that nine could become that could have some real yeah. <laughs> impacts of that. Uh, let's uh, invite your participation. Uh, we'll put the microphone here. If you're on this side of the audience, please go back through that door. The line begins with our producer, Jane Ann, there. Uh, and we invite you to join us for one uh, one part comment or question and uh, we'll get you in here part of the conversation. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, sir.
4: Uh, all right. Uh, my name is David Akana. Uh, uh, I have a question to all the panelists. Uh, would you just want to share your thoughts a little bit with respect to the challenges that uh, you have covering all these sets of issues uh, that you have talked about? And uh, the world is right now, the critical junction, whereby in the next two years we're going to be switching from the MDGs Probably to the sustainable development goals. What is it that the media needs to do uh, to be able to up its game and be able to participate in making sure that uh, it's actually playing its watchdog role as we move on to uh, post-2015? Thank you.
0: MDG, the Millennium Development Goals. Who would like to tell? uh, Michael?
4: I think the media should um, focus not only on the problems but also find a way of um, part of the solution. I think that is vital in this regard. That's my contribution.
1: Gustavo, perhaps? I think one of the, the challenges of this coverage is, is, uh, is that these are longer-term commitments or longer-term uh, results or impacts. So it's very difficult to, to actually create a momentum in a newspaper or with your editor or with your audience that these subjects are actually important so, and tell the story of something that's going to be reached in 50 years. And so that's I, I see one of the main main challenges really to tell a good story with such a kind of a vague target sometimes.
0: And there are a lot of process stories. The, the UN mm. process is complicated. It's a lot of how, how, and that there's it's really tough to make that those compelling stories. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you all for coming and sharing your opinions and insights with us tonight. I wanted to know in terms of international negotiations, we've always seen that cultural differences about how the climate is conceived play a major role in how different countries interact with the climate issue and end up having conversations about it. In the U.S., for example, we know that it's tightly linked to is this an economic burden or such. What I wanted to know is, for limiting those sorts of misunderstandings, what would you think internationally is the least recognized cultural or conceptual framework of the climate issue in your countries that the rest of the world doesn't conceive of? Is it rural issues? Is it something to do with a particular subsection of the environment like in the Amazon? How does the climate get framed in your countries that the rest of the world doesn't recognize as part of your leader's calculus? So how is the climate framed in your country that might be different than somewhere else? Gustavo, for yeah, I, w- I would say that
1: it's mainly that the issue that you can have a, a big region in the country just drying out and I don't think people might understand what does it mean and I, I, I tell you how this would affect and it's not just because you would lose immense biodiversity but you end up changing the whole climate system of the region maybe of the world and there was just and uh, 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 one specific example here, which is, was very funny. A few years ago, there was a major drought in Argentina. And so soybean production, corn production, really, really bad. And one day, the Clarín newspapers put big headlines. It's like, it's Brazil's fault.
0: <laughs> it was like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great story. It was just explaining the science behind the, the, the rains, of the region, which is like you have a, a blow coming from the Atlantic, pushing the moisture from the Amazon into the Andes, which comes down to the to the Argentina and rains in that region. So, because of the deforestation, these rains are diminishing. So, I think that's something that is not being totally understood.
0: Michael Samiri, you also have thoughts about resource conflicts and wars that are climate related in Africa.
1: Yeah,
4: so we is a re, very topical issue in Nigeria now. Um, we have this uh, uh, ch- uh, popular uh, lake within the Sahara uh, Desert uh, called Lake Chad. It's actually shared by about four countries, Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, Niger, Mali, several countries. Uh, on, of recent, over the years, the lake has really shrunk considerably attributed to climate change and several issues, and a lot of um, people depend on, 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 on this lake. And the agriculturalists, the, the pastoralists, and all that. And of recent, there was a discussion of recent that linked these um, developments to terrorism. We have this big problem in Nigeria now called Boko Haram. It's a, it's a kind of a group that is against the Western education and bombing and all those things. So there was a research um, they said that they found out that, um, so a large extent most of, a lot of youths that um, were engaged, they were, they were, living was tied to the lake, become very idle and were now susceptible to you know influences by this this um, uh, group and oh there's also another uh, scenario a lot of these pastoralists these nomadic that they move around they don't have, they don't stay anywhere they, they take along the, the cattle that where they go and the, the, the rivers are shrinking the the uh, grazing grounds are disappearing so they, they now move closer to farmlands and they have become very aggressive when they are resisted, you know, resist their, 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 their catches from feeding. So this is a major area that is affecting, you know, climate. We are trying climate change with uh, development, agriculture and all that. It's, it's, it's a big problem.
0: There's a movie out there uh, called Climate Refugees. There's also a book out there called Climate Wars, if you'd like to look into more of either of those. Let's have our next question. Welcome.
1: Yes, this is a question uh, regarding China and Africa. Uh, there's uh, a significant amount of poaching going on uh, in Africa, for horns from rhinoceros and elephant to go to markets in China and Vietnam uh, what role has the chinese media played uh, in helping to expose this problem uh, and potentially combat it
2: i don't see i don't see much courage on uh, the China's investment in effort in on chinese media actually but it is becoming uh, be uh, becoming more but still uh, no, Lacking of uh, uh, resources or sources for news, um, Chinese media tend not to cover such stories because it's not that – I mean, suppose that uh, there's a story about China's investment or its relationship with Africa. Its audience does not care too much. So uh, it's very hard for, for Chinese media to report a lot about uh, the China-Africa uh, market issues.
0: let our next audience question. Welcome.
4: Hi. Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, kind of from all of you, what makes the most compelling environmental story that you've told? Um, So maybe you could each give an example of the story that you've told that you were surprised by how much attention it got. And, you know, what makes the most compelling story to people that feel disconnectedly, like you're saying, from environmental issues?
0: Great question. So impact, your favorite story. Gustavo yeah. Federos, and we'll go down. Yeah, well, I we'll have one specific story which
1: uh, it relates with one specific species. It's very conservation story. Uh, we have this um, Speaks Macau in Brazil. Do, do you know the, the, the movie Real? The, the, that Macau is a Speaks Macau, but the Real just placed it in the totally wrong place. She never yeah. lived in Rio. Yeah. <laughs> I say she because we use it. At a, woman 's name for it but she lives in and more in the dry shrub, uh, shrub area of Brazil but is distinct in nature because of uh, uh, traffic but now there is a lot of effort to to bring it back and this effort is done by the sheikh in Qatar so I went to Qatar to see where this guy just because what people think but i'm i'm not saying this is that the guy actually had bought the, the birds for many years ago, but because of the sites, which is the law for not trafficking animals, he started bre- uh, breeding the, the birds. And now it's the most successful breeding all around the world, and I think he has more, almost a 100 birds. And he committed himself to bring the birds back to Brazil and he bought a whole area of the land to to put the, 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 the birds back. And so when I found out this story, I was like, that's an amazing story. And I told and I got so many response of people's some saying like it's beautiful that we, we might have this species back in, in in the wild, but some say like what's this crazy shake once with us and some get <laughs> what he why do you, because why he has all our, all of our birds and so it was a amazing response.
0: This one a story with impact. Uh, well,
2: uh, I have a story about uh, one of the EJN fellows. Several years ago, uh, he went to a uh, city in uh, middle uh, China. Uh, where there are many uh, polluting companies there, but the, the the deputy mayor told him that uh, there's no any pollution around this area. Um, but of course, he found the truth and he reported. After right after he reported the the pollution there in the city, the deputy mayor was fired. Uh, you can see the immediate uh, effect you know, from from media coverage even in China. It's uh, uh, I mean. You, you can find many good stories uh, every month in China uh, about environmental issues believe me China is now at the, uh, the the gold mine of environmental stories it is a lot every day you can see
0: and there's actual a lot of protests and civil uh disobedience you can't protest mm. but you can walk around places right yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> legally we cannot demonstrate we can uh, by constitution but we we cannot actually <laughs> so uh yeah so the the urban middle class invented a uh, a uh, like walk around the building walk around the government building something like that we wear masks uh to complain about air quality uh so it, it's okay i mean the police is also breathing the, the air so they, they will not do something about it so it's okay to, to, to do something like that. So the media, if there's no restriction order from the propaganda department yet, the media tend to cover those kind of protests as soon as possible. So you can see those uh, uh, protests, environmental protests, uh, in many parts of China uh, in recent years, especially in urban areas. There, there
0: are a lot. Amelda Abano, a story that had impact. That's really memorable for you. Well,
3: I remember in 2009, I did a story about a fisherman. I was in a holiday actually, so uh, well, I was walking along the beach. I saw those uh, fishermen coming uh, to the shore, and they catch nothing but a little fish like this, little fishes. So I just asked them, just curiosity, and then I did the story on the impacts of of of. Uh, of not getting much uh, catch, and then actually the the story was linked on environmental issues and climate change like that. So the story actually uh, won the Asia won me as an Asian journalist of the year, and then the impact of that is that the local government created a job for the fishermen and of course their their wives for some livelihood in the community.
0: So they're no longer fishermen, but they're. Okay. <laughs> Michael Samiri?
4: Okay, uh, this, I, I remember this story. I, I don't know if I'll call it an impact, but it's very, memory, very interesting. We had this, um, would I call it a drought, for some time in Lagos, in Nigeria. There was no rain for quite some time. And somebody told me about a, a farming community outside of Lagos. I went there. I spoke to this sort of farmers. They told me their challenges. There's no, how, how, how uh, they've, they've planted, the ones that planted, they've not been able to. It's not growing. They they, they can't plant again because they, the rains have not come. Very good article. I, I was, I, I was, I was about to write the article. Went a few, uh, a few days later, then this heavy rain came to Lagos. It rained all day, all all through the day. It, it and I just, just occurred to me, why don't you go back to, to this farming community? I went there. The story was the was, the, was another extreme story entirely. The, the, the person that said they had no, there was no water, it was flooded, because it was, mo- was forced to move to uh, a swampy land because, uh, when there, there was drought, because there was no... Now, everyone was flooded. It lost everything. So I, 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 then I, I got hold of another, another woman, a uh, single mother. She put all her life savings into this project called uh, Job for Rights Program by the Legal state government. There was no, there was no rain. She lost over 300000 thousand euro from all her investments went. Um, Then that same rain, I went to her. She had gotten a a, a residence somewhere. The rain came, and there was a serious mudslide that virtually covered her house. So now I started and wrote this. I call this story Coping with Two Extremes. The first um, uh, scenario when there was no rain, and the, the second when there was too much rain. It turned out to be very... Interesting article.
0: And telling of the kind of extremes we're going to see with too much and too little, and uh, the same measures, similar measures. Let's have our next question. Welcome.
4: Hi. Thank you all for this discussion. Um, as you all are probably aware, in the United States, the fossil fuel industry is very politically powerful and has had a huge influence on policy in the United States, most of which has not been very good. I was wondering, especially for Nigeria and Brazil, how has how your countries interacted with the multinational oil companies uh, I know Brazil. There was just some big um, incident with an, with an international company over a spill and whatnot. And Nigeria. I'm assuming most of a lot of your oil is is uh, uh, being drilled by international companies. I was wondering how do they inf- influence your politics and your economy in your countries?
1: I think they're they're getting uh, more and more influence. The, the, the episode that you mentioned it was the oil spill of Chevron, which was the the largest OISP we we had so far in in Brazil. And I think it harmed a little bit the reputation of international companies which are just getting to Brazil right now. Well, they're there for long, but getting in big time for the the underwater, the the offshore uh, exploitation. Uh, But not enough. So there's a lot going on. Actually, we have to see what is coming because it's a very, very unique operation. We're talking about exploiting oil seven kilometers down the earth. Like after you reach the, the seabed, still you go more seven kilometers, and this is two hundred kilometers from the coast. So you're creating a whole new operation. It's not a helicopters, but because the helicopters cannot fly. 200 kilometers, so we're creating these bases of where they're going to fly helicopters and taking boats. So you see how much room for something going on, wrong exists on this operation. So And this is, cannot be done without international companies. Petrobras, the company, cannot do it by themselves. So they're partnering with BP, Chevron, all the the big guys for doing this. So let's see.
0: Michael Samiri So they,
4: they are very vital in Nigeria. Nigerian economy is basically uh, depends on oil, uh, crude oil, petroleum, and the big oil firms are there, of course, Shell, Chevron. Of course, they shape the policies. The government needs, needs them to, to get out this uh, crude oil. But the, 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 the downside of it is, the, is the, the pollution issue. There's a lot of spill, spillage. There's still flaring a lot of gas. That is just the downside of it, and... And we're not still refining the, the crude oil. We, we take it out of the country and bring it back, and it's now very expensive uh, petrol. So that, that's the issue. It's, we, we, it's vital for the Nigerian economy, but we, there's a lot of pollution going on.
0: Are you saying you'd rather have it refined in the country? Because that would be dirty refineries in your country. Well,
4: it would be cheaper, and um, uh, politics and whatever is not making the refineries to work somehow.
0: Let's have our last audience question.
2: Welcome.
3: I'm actually just following up on that question. You all live in countries where oil companies, foreign oil companies, produce oil and natural gas or have operations. And I'm actually curious as to the impact of foreign oil corporations potentially on your reporting. Do you face challenges in trying to report on those companies and their activities?
4: I, I am. I have a, a good example. Um, we, I talked about the CDM projects earlier. Clean development, a clean development Mechanism Project um, earlier. One or two oil companies are involved in one of them to gas capture. And um, the gas that is usually fled you will know, now be captured and um, used to generate some um, power to local communities. Well, some time ago, we decided, that okay, let us see what is happening, because they are officially, officially they are put by the UNFCC, that's UN uh,
0: uh, Climate Change, climate change that, mm-hmm.
4: Convention, we, uh, we, okay, we said, okay, let's go and look at what's really happening. Officially, they are, they, are, they are approved CDM projects. Are they really doing these things? We sent several letters of request. We never got any. We sent them last year. Up to today, we've not gotten. We made several moves. We, we've not really made uh, any impact. That is a very good example of how they're not being cooperative.
0: Other examples of uh, sort of pressure on, on news coverage? Well, uh, I'm going to ask the other, the other, yeah, anyone else? Litan or, or Gustavo?
1: No, not personally. I, I think that the Chevron episode in Brazil, it was quite complicated. There was, there's actually a, a, a court uh, trial now, which includes uh, an accusation against Chevron that they have uh, omit information. They actually lied in the very beginning about the extension of the, the oil spill. So that's the kind of information that I'm talking about like the right of information in general not just in journalism. So but I personally ne- never had any any problem.
0: Well, we tell you yes,
2: in China uh, because we have three uh you know the oil uh, the giant oil companies uh, that they, they are totally controlled by the government. So you generally you can report a um, small accident or spillover over or those accidents from you know, Shaving or other foreign foreign companies but for these three companies in you will feel pressure from the government it's not easy for the media to cover those spillover accident from them but still the chinese media are struggling for you know to covering more uh, situation from these three companies so we we complain a lot we criticize those companies um, but still you know, it's not easy it's a challenge
0: we have to end it there. Our thanks to our guests today. San Liu is the water director at the Green Innovation Hub in China. Michael Samiri is deputy editor of the Sunday Independent in Nigeria. And Gustavo Faleros is environmental journalist and Knight Fellow from Brazil. And Amelda Albano is president of the Philippine Network of Environmental Journalists. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening and coming to Climate One today.